Welcome. This is episode 20 of the TTM Academy podcast. I'm your co-host, Felipe Tran, and this is part two of our mini-series of episodes of the TTM podcast dedicated to discuss all aspects of cardiac arrest care and post-cardiac arrest care in the times of COVID-19 pandemic. In the first of these episodes, I discuss some of the general observations and questions that have uh, come up in regards to cardiac arrest care um, in COVID-19 and specifically reviewed three uh, observational studies from Lombardy, Italy, and Paris, um, and most recently from Seattle here in the United States. I recommend that if you haven't, please check out that episode before because it will provide some background to the conversation that we're uh, about to have with our special guests today. So today, the idea is that we would like to uh, discuss the uh, recent uh, international resuscitation guidelines published by the American Heart Association and ILCOR, um, providing some general recommendations for healthcare providers um, on how to manage cardiac arrest patients during the COVID-19 pandemic. And I thought that uh, there would be no better uh, friends and experts to discuss these guidelines uh, and ask some questions about them than uh, our two guests today. They are two researchers and uh, resuscitation experts with a lot of experience working and thinking about cardiac arrest care, um, who I thought would be ideal to discuss this recent uh, international statements uh, that have provided some recommendations. One of them is joining us from Michigan, and the other is joining us from the Netherlands. Cindy, Hans, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks, uh, Felipe. It's a great pleasure and honor. Absolutely. So I'm going to do a proper, I think neither of you need actually uh, an introduction uh, in the resuscitation community, but I'm going to do my due diligence and uh, provide a brief uh, introduction for, for both of you. Dr. Cindy Su is an emergency physician and intensivist. Uh, she's also a researcher at University of Michigan. Uh, she uh, trained at John Hopkins, um, had an MD, PhD degree from Boston University, and then um, pursuing uh, training in critical care. She then uh, completed both an emergency medicine residency at Penn and a trauma surgical critical care fellowship at uh, Shock Trauma Center. She's currently an assistant professor of emergency medicine and surgery at University of Michigan, and she clinically splits her time between Michigan's uh, really amazing emergency critical care center, the EC3 unit, uh, the adult emergency department, and the trauma burn ICU at Michigan. She's also a K-12 scholar in emergency critical care research, and she is dedicated to uh, specifically the study of translating uh, neuroprotective uh, therapies for cardiac arrest survivals from preclinical studies into um, clinical phase uh, trials. And Dr. Hans uh, Van Schupen is an anesthesiologist, uh, also a PhD candidate um, at the Amsterdam Resuscitation Studies uh, Arrest um, in, in Amsterdam. Hans is an attending anesthesiologist at uh, Amsterdam's UMC in the Netherlands uh, with a particular interest in resuscitation, uh, pre-hospital care, and human factors. Next to his clinical work in the operating room in the emergency department, 
Uh, he teaches life support courses on ALS. Uh, he's an ALS course director and ERC educator. And he's actively and constantly teaching uh, cardiac arrest uh, across, uh, across Europe. Currently, Hans is conducting a PhD uh, research on ventilation during pre-hospital advanced life support with the ARREST study group in the Netherlands. He's also an active uh, member of the Dutch Resuscitation Council um, and founding member of a Resus NL conference, the Resus Netherlands conference, uh, and a jury member of the Dutch Resuscitation Competition. I'm so excited to have you, and uh, I would like to jump straight into uh, this interesting topic. So, summarizing uh, what we just what I discussed, I guess, uh, in a brief monologue last week, uh, I'd like us to, to actually get us started by getting your reactions and maybe perhaps thoughts in regards to uh, some of this data that, that we've seen. First one is the study by Baldi. This Italian group showed that there was a f roughly 58% higher um, incidence of cardiac arrest, out of hospital cardiac arrest compared to the same uh, time in the previous year in this Northern uh, region of Italy. There was also a higher percentage of cardiac arrest out of hospital critical arrests that, that were unwitnessed. Um, they also observed that the death rate in the field increased uh, over a little bit over 11% during the outbreak. And then they also uh, saw that the cumulative incidence of out of hospital critical arrests during the, the, this uh, pandemic period was strongly associated with the cumulative incidence of COVID-19 cases. And that specifically the spike that they observed followed really closely the time course of the COVID-19 outbreak. Consistent with that, the, the French group led by Dr. Marjan um, showed that there was also a higher rate of out-of-hospital critical arrest uh, occurring at home. Uh, that associated with that, uh, they saw less bystander CPR, less uh, shockable rhythms, and uh, overall longer uh, times to, to interventions in, in, uh, in the management of critical arrest. After adjusting for all potential confounders, they found that the pandemic period remained uh, significantly associated with lower survival rate at hospital admission. So basically overall, we could say that um, hospital uh, cardiac arrest patients are doing worse uh, during the pandemic. And lastly, uh, the group led by Mike Sired from Seattle um, recently published a study where they looked at over a thousand out-of-hospital critical arrests, which had uh, been treated by EMS with CPR in over 470 cases of these. And this group pointed out, looking at their uh, data, that assuming the risk of transmission by uh, bystanders performing hands-only uh, CPR without PP is roughly 10%, treating 100 patients could result in one bystander infection um, uh, only one bystander infection. Given a 1% or assuming a 1% mortality for COVID-19, then the math is that approximately one rescuer might die in 10,000 bystander CPR events. In contrast, or by comparison to that, they pointed out that bystander CPR saves more than 300 additional lives among 10, the same 10,000 patients with out-of-hospital critical arrest. I, was, I thought that this uh, data was actually really thought-provoking because it kind of provided us some context and sort of raised some questions in regards to, um, I think, what many of us had been perhaps doing or at least thinking. So um, I'd like to get us started by asking Cindy, did you think that this data makes sense? 
Yeah, you know, I think these three studies all point to very interesting findings, as you mentioned, and one of which is that there seems to be an increase of uh, overall uh, prevalence of out of hospital cardiac arrest, with an increase of those who uh, suffered the arrest at home, which is not surprising, you know, with social distancing and quarantine. Um, there's also uh, a decrease in presumably bystander CPR um, and overall worsening of outcome. I think the tough thing is actually to put that in context of the overall prevalence uh, in the community, the testing capability, so that correlates to the over, also to the overall prevalence, um, and also, uh, you know, our, uh, the case, uh, case fatality of the certain community. So I think even uh, in the U.S., uh, different between different states and cities. I mean, certainly, uh, at Michigan, we are approaching a case fatality of close to I think nine or ten percent now, with Detroit, uh, being the highest. And so I think you have to put all that into context. But I think the biggest question is ultimately, uh, is this a chicken and egg situation where the COVID is directly causing these cardiac arrests, presumably from respiratory failure, or is this an indirect effect? from folks not calling for help when they need to be, or both. And I think I don't think any of these three studies uh, were able to get to the bottom of it for very obvious reasons. Hans? Yeah, I actually uh, quite agree with uh, with Cindy there because, uh, you know, the, actually, the actual diagnosis of COVID-19 is quite uh, difficult actually in, in some cases because a fair share of uh, patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest who do not survive or do not make it to the hospital uh, do not get tested as well. So that means that we will still continue to have a certain group of patients who will actually have some, uh, some complaints or difficulty breathing or whatsoever and then go into arrest and it, it will still remain unclear whether or not it's like acute heart failure or COVID-19. So I think uh, this is a, a real relevant point. Another thing is the interpretation of the finding that there were less shockable rhythms. I think this is also very interesting, uh, but challenging at the same time. We see that uh, that there is a decrease in, uh, in time uh, in, in percentages of uh, uh, bystander CPR rates. And we know that if there's a decrease in bystander CPR, there is a decrease in the uh, incidence of a shockable rhythm as well. So, But it could also be the COVID-19 uh, causing hypoxia and causing a decrease in shockable rhythms as well. So I think this, this, um, this challenge uh, will, I think, remain uh, to be seen in other studies I'm expecting. I think it's uh, it's nice to illustrate uh, the basics as well. I, I personally uh, am a registered uh, citizen responder myself as well. And just to illustrate one point, uh, Cindy has made just uh, and and you have made as well. Um, just a small anecdote here. Uh, during the COVID period, I actually got a, a, an alert with the national citizen response team of a patient who went into cardiac arrest in my neighborhood. And I was there within five minutes and shocked him out of VF with my own AAD. And uh, I actually spoke him to, uh, to him to the phone. So he, uh, he was neurologically intact and alert when he was transported to the hospital. I think that emphasizes the fact that we still need to uh, focus on the basics and not forget the regular non-COVID cardiac arrest patient. What about the concerns of infections? So healthcare providers, we are 
probably the profession with high, high risk of contracting the disease, right? This risk is, at least in the U.S., was compounded by the, the shortages of PPE. So I wanted to get your thoughts to, uh, before we jump into the actual recommendations from the guidelines, before we even had any protocols in place, we had a couple of cases where a patient, you know, a code blue in the hospital or in the ED, a patient was unconscious or unresponsive, and it wasn't perhaps confirmed that the patient had COVID, but it was a patient under investigation. There was a lot of hesitation to do the basics, right? To do the airway management, to initiate uh, chest compressions if that was indicated, if the patient was actually found to be in arrest. I was genuinely worried about as someone who obviously, and I think you probably feel the same way, we care deeply about cardiac arrest and we are sort of well-tuned with the improvements that the, the field has made over you know decades, right? With pre-hospital to increase bystander CPR, right? In the hospital to improve the quality of CPR and to in- improve every detail and aspects of team performance. And all of a sudden, I felt like our credit card has cases were just kind of taking a huge step backwards. Like, and we were kind of back to square one. We were not jumping to do CPR right away, right? We were taking, you know, long minutes to dawn and, you know, get people with, uh, with appropriate PPE. And I think the, at least probably part of the problem in the beginning, at least in my experience, was that we had not perhaps practice enough just getting the PPE on. It's something that, you, you know, you, you just, you rarely do, right? And all of a sudden you had to do it very quickly. And, you know, Don put, put a, a PPAR, for instance, in, in 30 seconds to, to go in and intubate and care for cardiac arrest. And so I feel that there is a lot of um, uh, hesitation and we definitely struggle in the beginning uh, as a team and also, of course also individually to um, kind of know how to act in, in terms of uh, this sometimes basic you know, elements of resuscitation. Um, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are and kind of if you had uh, some observations in, in the early part of this. Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely agree. I think um, in the very beginning, um, you know, when, when the, I remember in March, early March, when we started to get some of these COVID patients, um, we quickly learned that we really, that, you know, practice is what we really need to do. So I think in terms of airway for the aerosol generating procedures, uh, you know, and, and related to that is cardiac arrest resuscitation. And, um, and we, but we did um, weeks of in-situ simulation to practice this. We went from the airway uh, modified approach to cardiac arrest uh, algorithm. And I think, you know, I agree with you. I mean, I personally, you know, cardiac arrest um, is something that I care passionate about clinically, but also for research. And I feel like, uh, I was mental, uh, morally, and I think clinically torn in the very beginning. But I think you know, it's remember, it's it, it's um, important to remember there that there is, um, I, I I tell our staff that you know staff safety is number one, right? So if we end up losing a, a frontline provider to COVID, then we can't take care of our patients, and so that's that's I think number one point that is, there's no such thing as emergency and pandemic. Um, but I think with enough uh, ample amount of practice and teamwork and also uh, enough time for preparation, I think a lot of these uh, out-of-hospital cardiac arrests, we actually can get some uh, five, 10 minutes warning to put our PPE on in the department. And I think that goes a long way. So trying to troubleshoot some of the logistical issues, um, I think was really critical for us. Hansel, what was your experience 
Any thoughts? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, we did some training as well, uh, provided instruction videos uh, beforehand. And I think uh, another aspect which, uh, which was really helpful to prevent people uh, rushing into the room without proper PPE is uh, the body check. Uh, we actually uh, instituted um, and implemented the body check very formally and very um, extensively just to, to make sure that your body is uh, correctly uh, dressed in PPE. I think it's very quite difficult for yourself to see if your, your mask uh, is fitting tightly and your uh, glasses are, uh, are are well positioned and stuff and you really need your body to check you out. That's a really, really good point. So why don't we jump straight into the actual guidelines? I'd like to start with some context. So I think it's important to remember that, that the success that we've had over the last, you know, decade decades uh, improving resuscitation care has really uh, relied on initiating uh, what are proven resuscitation interventions such as high-quality CPR, early defibrillation uh, within basically seconds or minutes. And it, it was precisely those aspects you know, under threat during uh, the context of the pandemic. So this evolving and expanding COVID uh, infections created many challenges for each of those components of the of the chain of survival. And that's what the uh, AHA and LCOR felt that required to have the experts step up and provide some modifications to the established guidelines. And more specifically, we know, as we mentioned, that the resuscitation uh, carries much higher risk for healthcare workers dealing or administrating CPR involves performing many aerosol generating procedures. And that includes the chest compressions, that includes the use of positive pressure ventilation, regardless of the ventilatory strategy that you're using, and, and just generally establishing advanced uh, airway, um, including endotracheal intubation. I'd like to start by asking Cindy, actually, before you just you'd summarize what, what the main points are that are described in the guideline, what is the process? How, how did this guideline statement came about? So I think, you know, uh, with both, I actually had the opportunity to uh, take part of both uh, organizations um, in terms of uh, formulating scientific guidelines. And um, normally for AHA, uh, in order to get a scientific statement um, published um, and distributed, it goes through a something that's called Manuscript Oversight Committee process, or uh, MOC. And that process is quite uh, evolving and could oftentimes take longer than a year. And what the AHA did uh, for this particular, this is actually a interim guidance um, publication. Um, And it's really more a uh, consensus statement expert consensus than, than a scientific guideline. I think a lot the authors were uh, made it really clear that because of really the lack of evidence and the evolving nature of evidence that they wanted to make sure that they put something uh, to the public so that the various uh, local agencies and um, institutions can uh, adapt and modify from this uh, to fit their uh, needs. And that's really based on you know, the degree of training, the prevalence of the disease, um, the availability of PPE, uh, and so forth. So that's that's the number one thing, which is, um, it's absolutely incredible that uh, this, you know, uh, both organizations were able to get something done so quickly uh, and so effectively. But I think with, uh, as we were gonna talk about, 
uh, a lot of these are, are expert consensus um, to really serve as a foundation to, for, for wherever you are to really use as a guide. So that's, that's my first point. Fair enough. Thank you. Um, so why don't we just jump straight into the HA recommendations uh, here. Uh, I think the first point is the uh, just management or, or approach to oxygenation and ventil ventilation strategies uh, with the intention to minimize uh, the aerosolization risk or transmission of viral particles during that, that process. Um, what were the concerns and what was the assessment of the literature, the existing evidence here, and what are the recommendations that the HA would? So I think the first issue is uh, whether or not chest compressions and defibrillations can, are actually aerosol generating procedures. Um, you know, I think according, we, we make the assumptions that, uh, they, uh, that chest compressions could, could be AGPs, um, and that's what the WHO uh, suggested, um, but we're not quite sure about defibrillation. Uh, and actually, in fact, if you were to look at the, what the uh, systematic review that Elcor put out, it's really, the evidence is quite uh, weak. So we assume that the that chest compressions could cause aerosol, aerosolization of viral particles. So going with that assumption, then what the AHA suggests that we do is to A, um, intubate uh, early as possible with a cuff tube, and if there's delays, um, to use a superglide airway, um, and to put a viral filter in between you and the patient, and to connect to the ventilator uh, whenever possible with a filter in place. Um, when uh, and uh, the other thing is to they recommend actually pausing chest compressions uh, during intubation and to optimize uh, first pass success by. Uh, having the person, the provider with the most experience do the intubation and also consider using video laryngoscopy when possible. Uh, and the idea, again, is to kind of distance yourself, the intubator, from the patient um, and to kind of minimize the, the risk of viral transmission. Um, if, uh, if you're going to use uh, BVM, uh, then uh, a, you know, a two-person technique with a tight seal and a viral filter is also recommended. Um, so the, those are, you know, I think the overall gestalt, which is um, instead of prioritizing chest compression, which are, you know, the CAB approach, we're kind of moving the airway a little bit higher now with the idea to, to really establish a closed circuit with a viral filter in place as soon as we can. Great. Hence, um, obviously, the, the, the two guidelines are very similar in that they're, they're reviewing the same, some of the same uh, questions and providing recommendations uh, for the management of the same uh, segment of patients. Um, what can you tell us about the, the statement that Ilcor put out? Is there anything that we should highlight here? Well, I think uh, there's indeed a, a very large overlap, and I think uh, uh, all the guidelines are uh, on the website of uh, Ilcor, ilcor.org. Um, they, they very nicely uh, summarized all the measures that you can take in, under these uh, circumstances, and I think there's, uh, uh, like I said, a large uh, overlap with uh, what Cindy said. I think. Uh, Two things that I can add to that is uh, 
when using BVM ventilations or a superglottic airway device, you can best consider keeping uh, CPR in the 30 to 2 ratio to prevent uh, simultaneously insufflating the patient and compressing the chest. Uh, that is all just with the aim to decrease the risk of uh, leakage of air and uh, aerosol generating uh, situations. Um, another aspect which is uh, also stated in the ILCOR guidelines is that uh, the COVID circumstances, the, the setting that we're in, is uh, a setting uh, which uh, is um, uh, very good to use a mechanical chest compression device. I think uh, it enables uh, the decrease, uh, decrease of amount of people who are in the room in that setting uh, near the uh, patient. And I think that probably can can help decrease the exposure that you have to the aerosols. Absolutely. And I want to ask you, uh, actually, if you could describe specifically, Cindy mentioned this as it is mentioned in both the HA and the LCOR guidelines, but where you have described as the forehand CPR technique, which we will link uh, in the show notes. You wrote a really nice blog post on this technique in your blog, DutchResource.com, which side note I highly recommend for listeners to check out. Yeah, um, so this was uh, actually a blog post that I wrote two years ago. I called it the forehand CPR technique. Uh, since then, there were like two studies published who actually called it the modified two rescuer CPR technique, which is fine with me as well. Um, I like so your, I like your name better. Okay, thanks. <laughs> well, um, I think there, the the reason why I wrote the blog post is actually uh, twofold. Uh, first of all, I'm I'm really convinced that uh, we should be focusing on optimizing ventilations during cardiac arrest because we know from a couple of studies that uh, oxygen saturations uh, drop rapidly after a couple of minutes of cardiac arrest time. And I think uh, just from a physiological basis and, and also some, some scientific insights, I think if we can optimize oxygenation, you will optimize oxygen delivery to the tissues and then... Uh, I think it's beneficial for survival for patients as well. So this is the first reason I wrote the blog. The, the second reason I wrote it is because it's actually very helpful in the, in the process of resuscitation. Uh, I think we should have lots more attention for the ergonomics and, and you know, like uh, provider performance. And this is really helpful because, uh, especially in pre-hospital care, when you arrive first at the scene as a paramedic, it's very difficult uh, for you to actually provide airway management and ventilation and running the code. And I think you know, we all recognize that you can't like be hands-on, uh, busy with technical stuff and a good team leader at the same time. And I think this this technique will actually help a little bit in that difficult setting. So um, what it actually uh, is, is that uh, for the uh, everybody who uh, aren't aware of this technique, so basically it comes down to the, the fact that um, the provider who is at the head end uh, responsible for BVM ventilations actually uses the two hands to create a good seal with the face mask to the patient. Um, the, the provider who is actually providing the chest compressions after giving 30 chest compressions can just leave one hand at the center of the chest at the correct position and the other hand to squeeze the back two times. After giving two ventilations, the uh, hand is placed back on the correct position on the chest and, and chest compressions are resumed. 
So this technique has a couple of advantages. First of all, this is the optimal technique. There's, there's some signs in this as well. Uh, the way that you can hold the face mask with two hands, also with the TE grip rather than the CE grip, uh, provides the optimal seal. So that means that you will have the optimal insufflations. Second of all, with this grip, you can have an optimal jaw thrust as well. I think we should be focusing on not only a good seal, but also a proper jaw thrust. And this is uh, more achievable with this technique. Um, second advantage is uh, you don't need an extra person to squeeze the back for you because the person is already there uh, doing the chest compressions. Uh, the third uh, advantage is you prevent simultaneous ventilation and compressions. I know that some uh, regions also in the US uh, uh, are, are, are do this anyway, but uh, there is, from a historical perspective, there is an idea that uh, it might increase the chance of uh, gastric insufflation. I know there's controversy in this, but anyway. Uh, for, uh, furthermore, there are some short pauses in uh, compressions and I think uh, it's also very interesting to uh, relate to the practical experience I think that we all have if you are providing chest compressions and you get to the end of the 30 and you're looking at the one who is holding the bag and uh, you can see that they're totally distracted with everything else what's going on uh, then I think we all experience the fact that we uh, shout a couple of times like 30 30, uh, I'm sorry, 30, and then, you know, the, then the one you get the attention and then squeezes the back two times. So it, it means that regarding timing, regarding communication, uh, it's so much more calm. And uh, the one who's doing the chest compressions can just easily provide a 30 to 2 with you uh, holding the face mask at the proper seal. Overall, we should try to minimize saturation of uh, BVM ventilation. At least that's something that we've been trying to do, right? We want to secure place that uh, definitive airway device as soon as we can to seal that airway, right? I think we all agree that um, you want to do that as early as you can and as safely as you can, and, and then immediately uh, place a viral filter. But it, while you're doing that, while you're providing ventilation with that BVM, uh, it just makes absolute sense to do the proper two-hand technique. I, mean, I think I completely agree with this, just makes sense you know, beyond the COVID times, right? This just makes sense. This is, I think, a good airway management practice for resuscitation care, period. It, but even more so in the, in, the, in the current context where we're trying to minimize uh, this uh, aerosolization of, of potential aerosolization of viral particles. Yeah, I agree. I think it's uh, for, the, for the standard cardiac arrest with, with, uh, outside of the COVID setting, I think this is uh, very helpful as well. I just wanted to, to give a, a small shout out to my friend, uh, Chris Root, who is a former paramedic and uh, now an EM, EM resident. And uh, he, is, he actually uh, published a study in the Journal of Emergency Medicine uh, regarding this technique. So I'll include that in the blog post. And there's another group in Hong Kong actually also studied this technique and both showed that the ventilation uh, improves with this technique while maintaining good quality chest compressions. Fantastic. Absolutely. You know Chris Root very well. So... I think this is a good place to end this. Um, I want to ask one last question for Cindy. I know that we've been following the amazing work that the EC3 unit in Michigan group has been doing, um, leading the way in terms of uh, goal-directed cardiac arrest care. Uh, I know that you guys have in place a, a goal-directed cardiac arrest algorithm uh, for a while now, and it's basically your standard of care, and that includes the use of entitled CO2 systematically, 
um, to drive the resuscitation goals and, as well as uh, arterial lines. Uh, I'd love to know if you guys um, have uh, had to change, adapt, uh, or move away from the goal-directed approach uh, in, the, in the context of the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, as with all things during uh, the pandemic, we've had to modify a few things. So I think for the, uh, in terms of cardiac arrest patients, um, it is difficult to determine for the out-of-hospital cardiac arrest who actually, you know, we, we assume that they're all presumed COVID um, as, until proven otherwise. We just don't have that data, right? For for the patients who though have a negative test, let's say it's a they they've been in the department for a while or they had a recent uh, outpatient test, um, then we would proceed with our standard uh, goal directed algorithm. Having said that, I think with uh, most scenarios when we we just don't know, um, we are certainly still using our continuous end title to titrate our uh, chest compression. Um, we um, we are doing away for, at least for now, the rescue pod device, uh, just again, just concern for uh, aerosol generation. And, and uh, once, and, and also I think one of the th key things that we want to, I want, we, we should say is, we always try to minimize the number of personnel in the room from the get-go to really, you know, minimize the risk of, uh, you know, aerosol generation and virus transmission. So the number of warm bodies in a room are, you know, for, for better or worse, fewer than our usual arrest. So there's not going to be perhaps an extra resident and they'll get, be getting to help you put that growing A line and things like that. But once we get, let's just say we get an RSC or we, we are, we've established the airway and uh, we can now go to the, the circulation aspect then we would put in, still put in an A line. So it depends on our prior, the prioritization of our tasks in hand. You know, I think certainly for most of our out of hospital arrests where we just don't know, uh, they're presumed COVID um, from the beginning, then we would proceed with our modify algorithm. Well, I think this is a good place to summarize what we've discussed. I'd like to just remind everyone that Safety should be the priority here, as we discuss uh, overall in, in terms of the ACLS management. All personnel in the room should have, uh, should don PPE for uh, AGPs for aerosol generating procedures before starting the, the management of the resuscitation. We want to minimize the number of warm bodies, as you nicely said, of healthcare workers in the room. In terms of airway management, we want to be very proactive in using, uh, inserting viral filters, uh, both for the VVM part, um, as well as when we have uh, already the, the intracranial tube in place. <clears throat> um, we want to, uh, minimize the duration of the BVM uh, ventilation phase and use the two hands uh, on the mask uh, with, with an ideal seal uh, technique as described. And we'll be linking blog posts from Hans in the show notes. We want to pause chest compressions during the advanced airway placement, um, at least until uh, the airway device is in place and the cuff is being inflated if the intracranial tube uh, is in, uh, is, has been inserted. We want to um, hold off uh, with initiating CPR until we have placed that viral filter um, attached to the BVM or that airway device. And uh, as Hans uh, described, we want to also apply, use a mechanical CPR device if those are available. That, that makes 
uh, plenty of sense to minimize the exposure of providers while performing um, chest compressions. We want to switch to 32 compressions to breath to minimize that aerosol uh, during ventilation as well. Any last thoughts from any of you? Yeah, I think uh, there's one practical tip I would like to add, especially for uh, yeah, especially for the pre-hospital uh, providers like paramedics and EMTs and you know, ambulance nurses and stuff. I think uh, there is a trend for an increased use of supraglottic airway devices. And if you follow these guidelines and, and you want to minimize BVM and, and place the supraglottic airway device in an earlier stage, and you do so without giving simultaneous chest compressions, which is perfect, and you place the device, if then the chest compressions are resumed, you have an open airway heading your direction uh, and with the first chest compressions, they're probably going to be quite some aerosols heading your way. So a practical tip for the pre-hospital providers to attach the viral filter to the supraglottic airway device before you place it in the patient. Uh, I think that will be probably be very helpful. And, and I think uh, the, the guys in the pre-hospital field are doing an, a great job. And uh, I think we, we mustn't forget from the hospital perspective that a lot of patients in cardiac arrest never make it to the hospital. So I think uh, they deserve our respect for the hard work that they do. Thank you so much, Hans, for your time. Thank you, Cindy, for joining us. We'll be linking all the information, all the citations that we mentioned, the guidelines and the blog posts in the show notes. And that is all for today. Until the next episode, Felipe Turan signing off from the CRS. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye.